As I'm getting ready, I would like to ask you if you have a Bible to turn it to the, the book of Haggai, the third to last book in the Old Testament. What we are doing in two weeks is we're going through the book of Haggai. Uh, Pastor Brubaker last week started with chapter one, and in that chapter, what we see is that God's people had not been faithful to do the work that God had given them to do. And through the correction coming from Haggai to them, they started that work, and God blessed them. And that sounds like that's a good place to end. But Haggai continues with chapter 2. He has more to say because God has told him, share more with, our, with my people. And in chapter 2, we have really what I see are three messages coming together, three sermons. And we want to go over those today. Because of a time restraint, I have to say that we're kind of taking an overview look. There's much more that could be said. But let's work together as we go through Haggai chapter 2. Our first set of scripture will be chap uh, verses 1 through 9 in chapter 2, and I'm going to read them, and please follow along. But I have named this message, The glory of the house will exceed Solomon's temple. Will exceed Solomon's temple. Follow along as I read chapter 2. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and, Je and to Joshua, the son of Jehozakah, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, thus says the Lord of hosts. Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, so that, you, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than that former says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. This chapter starts out much the same as chapter 1 does, and he makes reference to the date that this word came, the people to who it was given, and also to who is giving the actual message of the word itself. So why is that date important? It goes from the sixth month, the 24th day, to the seventh month, the 24th day. So roughly, this message comes 30 days later than the first message in chapter one. 
I believe one of the things is because those who do the service to God will receive fresh encouragement from him to proceed in his service. God will encourage those that are doing his work. Is this a fast rule that it always happens? That people professing God's word are always encouraged? No. But we follow and serve a faithful God. And he will give us encouragement. Well, how does that encouragement come about? Sometimes we have to ask him, Lord, what's going on? Are things going right? We have to communicate with him, pray. He will show us. And one of the ways that he shows us how to do his work and an encouragement is through his word. We have his word where many people that have labored for God have been faithful. He is a faithful God. If he did it then, he will do it now, and we can trust in him. But also, I think that this date is here because it helps us understand the truth of God's word. God's word is true and accurate in every respect. You know, we say that the Bible is many things, and it is in one way a history book. It's not the same as secular history. It doesn't follow along the same, but it crosses and comes together with history, secular history, and we can see that when the story is told to us and given dates, that should reassure us that it is not in error. 530 B.C., Roughly 100 years more will be all that God will talk to his people before there's a silence, and God himself will come into the world and the New Testament will start. But at this time, we can realize that even secular history cannot contradict God's word. About a week ago, Denise and I and some friends here from church were at a mission conference and I heard a preacher giving a message about Jonah. And Jonah was a reluctant servant. And it talked about Jonah didn't want to go to the city of Nineveh because of the people there, the Assyrians. And what this preacher did was told us the atrocities that the Assyrians did to people that struck great fear in their hearts. And you know where all of his information came from? Very graphic information as to how barbaric these people were, secular history. Because it crosses over with God's word. And we can be reassured that God's word is true. So much for the date. Now let's go on to the people. It talks about there is a governor, a civil ruler, a high priest, a religious re ruler, and a remnant, a remnant of his people. God's people are unique where their civil leaders, their government, and their religious leaders are both, should be, led by God. It is his nation under his power. There's no other nation that really can say that, that they are both one and the same together. And that's why I think that he tells each one of these leaders what this next message is going to be. But th there's also mention again of the remnant of the people. 
These are people that have come back to Jerusalem from being in exile. We have to understand that it's been about 70 years since Solomon's temple was completely destroyed. Now think about it, 70 years. If we think about that in the history of the United States, that would put us back to about right after World War II ended and maybe the Korean conflict was coming about. We have many veterans still today that can tell us about what happened then. This remnant would have had people, I believe, that had first-hand knowledge of what that temple looked like. And one of the things that it says in God's word, in, chapter, or in verse nine it says, the latter glory of the house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. The latter will be greater than the former. Does that really happen? We'll get back to that. Okay, that's a look at the dates and the people, but how about the, the message itself? All we know about Haggai is it says his title. He was a prophet. But what I think is really interesting in this book is that God himself, going, being, using Haggai to give this word, calls himself the Lord of hosts. We read that description, but do we really understand who the Lord of hosts is. I think we should take a better look so we can understand. This is a significant and exalted title of God, and it's found over 280 times in the New Testament. I'm sorry, the Old Testament. In Haggai alone, if I've counted right, it's mentioned 13 times. Haggai only takes up a, a, a page and a half in my Bible. I think God's trying to get our attention and Israel's attention that he is the Lord of hosts. So what does it mean to be the Lord of hosts? I think we have to break it down and understand what, what the Lord is and who, what is meant by host. I checked two different scripture reference books to look up Lord. It took over two pages just to understand what the Lord can be used as, the meanings of it in God's word. In this instance, it means it's a covenant name of Israel's God, Yahweh. And more specifically, it is used as the master or my master. It has uh, overtones of a military term as to one that's in charge, one that's in charge, of, complete in charge of many troops. But in the Lord of hosts, when we understand what the host is, it's not only talking about cre creatures and beings, whether they be, be on this earth or in heaven, but it is talking about everything that is under the domain of God himself. The seas the suns, the galaxies, the plants, you name it, God created it, and he is the master over it. He is the Lord of hosts. He is sovereign, and he, should be, he gives them reassurance now as they're working on this temple because they are working for the Lord of hosts and know that nothing will happen apart from God's will. Everything 
and every power and every ruler is under the dominion of God himself, we, like them, can completely trust God. There is nothing outside of his realm that he does not have power and sovereign, sovereignty over. He tells his people in the last part of verse 4, to do the work declares the Lord of hosts. They are willing to do that work. But I think he almost does exactly what I said uh, earlier to his remnant people at that time. He gives them an example of his past faithfulness. And he said, do you remember how I brought you out of Egypt? Many times in the Bible, that's the reference made of God's faithfulness to his people. Because it was nothing short of a miracle that God would allow this people to leave, army being pursuing them, and still be able to escape those that had him, them in captivity. But I think that there's really a greater deliverance than just the example of his people being brought out of Egypt. And I think that is the deliverance that Jesus gives through his life and his work on the cross. And that's where this part of scripture is now leading. I think it is uh, starting to talk about future times and it is prophecy looking ahead. I say a few future events as in verses nine through six through nine, but I think that there's also a tone there where it's talking about the work at the temple, but much more is talking about something much greater than just a physical building. I want to read again verses six through nine. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so the treasures of all the nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, than the former says the Lord of hosts. When we understand that these verses are actually a prophecy of Jesus Christ to come, then the true nature and word that God is trying to share with his people comes to light, not only to them, but to us. It says that he will shake the heavens and the earth, not like in the signs that he did before Pharaoh when his people were coming out of uh, Egypt, where Moses, through the power of God, made things happen, spectacles that they have never seen. But I think it's much more than that. I think that it says that the rulers and time and nations will all be shaken, like it says in verse 7. And how does that come about? Think of the life of Christ. Think of the day that he died. What was shaken then? Stones broke in half. The earth shook. The middle of the day, the sun was no more. When Jesus was born, what happened then? Herod and all of Jerusalem was troubled. 
Matthew 2, verse 3 says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him over the birth of this baby. Hebrews expounds on this even more, where it says in chapter 12, verses 26 through 28, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of the things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And that kingdom, that kingdom is Christ himself. But what about the glory of this house? Is it talking about the physical glory or is it talking about something else? I believe in verses 8 and 9, it says that it is talking about Christ himself. It says, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord is God over all. He created it, everything that there is, the silver, the gold, the resources of this world. You know, Solomon's temple was built in great splendor. Even the tabernacle, the moving tent that, that was the dwelling place of God while they were in the wilderness. It was all made and fashioned after God's instructions with the best of materials. But its glory was in its presence. But there was going to be a temple that would be even more so, of greater glory, and that is the temple of Christ himself. Because Christ would occupy this temple that they were building. He literally would be in that place. And that great glory would be a 12-year-old adolescent that was preaching God's word. And learned men were amazed. It would be Jesus preaching the word in that place and healing people. It would be Jesus coming into that temple and proclaiming again that it is used wrongly and throw out the buyers and sellers. After Christ would leave this world, that same temple would have the apostles preaching the gospel, the true glory of God for what he had done in that place. But the last part of verse 9 also says, In this place I will give peace, declares the Lord. Really? Peace in that temple? Was there peace in that temple? Not at all. It could not be talking about the structure itself. It had to be more. The account of Christ clearing the temple is recorded in all four of the Gospels. But I want to read today and focus on John chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, how Jesus cleared the temple, because I think it's most appropriate for us to see 
about where the true glory of the temple is and the peace also. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scriptures and the word Jesus had spoken. Like the disciples, I think when we see all of this together, we can understand that God's word is telling exactly what's going to happen through Haggai. That this temple would be the temple, the body of Christ, and they can believe and be assured just like we can through the example of the scripture and what God through Jesus himself said and spoke. We know that the Lord of hosts kept his promise of sending his son Jesus, the true dwelling place of God, and his glory is above anything or anybody. Haggai's second message in chapter two is in verses 10 through 19. And I think this message is blessings come to a defiled people. Blessings come to a defiled people. Follow along as I read verses 10 through 19. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai by the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his his fold, bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people. And with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, were there but 10? When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day forward, from the, 20th, from the 24th day of the month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider. Is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. 
I think that in this part of scripture, we see that Haggai has specifically wanted to talk to the priests. He had the authority from God. He could have gone right to the people. But I think, and by doing it the way that he did, that he brought the priest in to this conversation. First of all, he was wanting them, who were supposed to know the law, to see exactly what he was saying was true. And maybe there was some judgment coming on the priests themselves at that time because maybe they had not been faithful in proclaiming the truth of God's word to the people. But what does he say to them? He gives two laws. And in the first one he says, if somebody has something holy with them and touches something else that is holy, does that thing become holy? And they said, no. All right, if something is defiled or unclean and you then touch something that's unclean, does that make that thing unclean? And they said, yeah, that does. That does happen. Matthew Henry would sum it up like this. The sum of these two rules is that the pollution is more easily communicated than the, than the sanctification. In other words, what it is saying is, and what God is saying to his people here is, you have taken up a holy work of being willing to rebuild my temple, but your heart is not right. You are unclean before me. You're just doing it. And it will not make you holy. It will not make you right before me. Our hearts must be in servitude out of love and obedience to God. Or anything that we do means nothing to him. When we give our tithes and offerings to the church, if we do it grudgingly, if our heart really doesn't mean, it doesn't mean anything to us, if we do not see that the blessing that God has given us in our life and we're but returning part of that to him, it's an unclean act. Psalm 20, 127 verse one would say, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build labor in vain. In other words, if God's hand isn't in it and upon it, it will come to nothing. And because the Spirit of God was not among them, they have been cursed by God. In verse 16 and 17, those verses are saying, you have not prospered because your heart has not been right with me. He has proclaimed curses on them in these two verses. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 15 through 68, God specifically tells the curses that will come upon his people if they are not obedient in following him. That's 43 verses where God warns his people what will happen when they are not faithful to him. Even Paul in the New Testament in Corinthians 11, and if that sounds familiar, that's the scripture that we use when we're celebrating the Lord's Supper. Paul admonishes them, because 
you were using that supper to drink too much, to overeat, and not do it to give honor and praise to God, some of you will be ill. Some of you will fall sick. Some of you will die. The curse for not following what God has directed mankind to do. But Haggai wanted them to consider their future and that the work had been, that had been done. In verses 18 and 19, we say again, consider from this day onward, through that time since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple had been laid, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig, the pomegranate, the olive tree, nothing has come about yet. What God is saying to them is, you have seed to plant. Do you know for sure whether it'll come up? That's one thing about planting seeds. We don't know if they will harvest. We can do so much, but God does the work for there be a harvest and an increase. The same with the trees and the vines and all those that, that produce fruits or have have produce coming from them. It's God that brings that increase. They don't know what will happen, but the last thing that it says is, I will bless you. I will be the one that gives you an increase. Malachi chapter 3, verse 10 says, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and to pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, God is the one that will bless their work. God is the one that will bless them with the needs that they have. Our greatest blessing, their greatest blessing, our greatest blessing today is the salvation work of Christ given to us by faith alone. And when we respond to his call, to do his kingdom work, he will be faithful to accomplish it. Lastly, the third message that Haggai is giving the people. The kingdom shall be established on the ruins of all the opposing powers. The kingdom shall be established on all the ruins of the opposing powers. Verses 20 through 23. Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the, thro the thrones of the kingdom. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down and everyone by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord. God tells Haggai to go to Zerubbabel and tell him, you shall go, it shall go well with you as you do my work. As you proclaim your message to the remnant. 
And he says, he will be the one that will fight for them. In some of the same language that we saw earlier, he is saying, none of these things that mankind thinks have any power in this world will be able to stand against you. It talks about the chariots and the horses and those things. Psalm, 12, Psalm 20 verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. When I say that, you may be thinking of that song that we teach to the children, how we can, just through song, show them that there is nothing trustworthy but God. We can't trust in things that may not last, but God will be forever. And why should, we, why should Zerubbabel be used like this as a servant of God? There's only one reason, because God chose him. There's nothing in him, but God is the one that will choose him. He will be used to govern his people, and through that, he will have the power to lead them, but also there will be a faithful remnant that will continue on, and the promise that was made to Abraham that from these people will come one to save mankind, Christ himself. God's work will continue because he is a faithful God. But there's one greater. There's one greater than any earthly ruler, and that one is also chosen of God. It is Christ himself. 1 Peter 2, verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am lying, laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Zerubbabel here is owned by, as God's servant. Jesus is his father's servant in the work of redemption as a faithful son. Early leaders would use their signet ring as a sign of their authority. Again, I use Matthew Henry. Our Lord Jesus is the signet ring of, Jesus, of God's right hand. For all power is given to him and, and delivered for him. By him, the great charter of the gospel is signed and ratified, and it is in him that all the promises of God are yea and amen. The gospel is the good news of the completed work of Christ himself. See, Christ came into this world, a sinful world, and led a perfect life. And went to the cross, an atoning death for the penalty for our sin. Sin had to be dealt with, and it was God's will that he should give his own son to die for that sin. We can do nothing on our own to make ourselves right before God. We have to account before, we have to account before a holy God for our sin. And the only thing that can atone for it is the atoning work of Christ on the cross. And that righteousness comes to us through faith alone, when we confess our sin and trust in Christ as our Lord and Savior, we can stand before 
a holy God because we receive the righteousness of God himself. The book of Haggai, a prophet that would speak the word of the Lord of hosts to a rebellious people. But they would repent. And we would see that God would use them and he would bless them. Maybe this is the first time that you've ever gone through the book of Haggai and didn't realize that it was one of the great places in the Old Testament that foreshadows the coming and tells about the truth that Jesus Christ, true God and true man, would enter this world. Moses would be a prophet. Jesus Christ would be the prophet. There would be a king, David himself. He was an earthly king. The king of the universe would come into this world in Christ Jesus. We see that there would be a priest after the name of, and I forgot his name, Melchizedek, thank you. He was a priest of this world. Christ is the priest that sits at the right hand of God the Father. And in this scripture, we see that there is a true and living temple where God dwells, and that is in Christ himself. And someday, those that trust in him will forever dwell with him in eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we never neglect your kingdom work because of, your, because of our self-centered pride. May we know that we never labor alone because the Lord of hosts is sovereign over all and directs our, all our endeavors. We praise you for you are worthy of all praise. And it's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.